This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Since yesterday, we've been telling you about an urgent call from two GTA medical officers of health to extend the current stay-at-home orders in Toronto and Peel. And that recommendation is motivated by the advent of the new variants, which are much more contagious than the one that we have been grappling with for most of the last year. So I'd like to hear from you. Is that a good idea? Should we do that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Toronto Mayor John Tory has come out strongly supporting that demand. And now I'd like to check in with Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Hello, Mayor Brown. Afternoon. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Always a pleasure to have you. So do you support uh, Dr. Lawrence Lowe's uh, recommendation uh, that uh, the stay-at-home order be extended? So I've got some mixed emotions from a Brampton perspective. I know our case counts have uh, gone down dramatically. There was a lot of hope from our local businesses about the reopening. Um, Having said that, I understand um, the concern about the variant outbreak in Mississauga. Um, in my conversations with Dr. Lowe, I know it's because of that variant outbreak in Mississauga that he's concerned for Peel Region. He wants to see the extent of, of the spread. There's 200 cases under review right now of the variant, uh, and um, that variant can be significantly more transmissible. Um, and, and they don't understand the full nature of how the variant um, is functioning. And so you know, he wants to examine it. And so... And at the end of the day, we trust the advice of our, of our public health officials. Uh, but, you know, my heart does go out to our small businesses because they've done their job. You know, they've, they've sacrificed. Our numbers are down. You know, we haven't seen numbers this low in Brampton in, in a long, long time. And so, um, you know, I do worry about the economic repercussions. Uh, I think everyone is extremely sympathetic to what is going on with small businesses, but uh, are you saying that you support Dr. Lowe's recommendation? I, I support the province making the decision based on the public health advice. Um, I'm not sure whether it needs to be um, as restrictive as, as a two-week extension. I've had some conversations with Dr. Lowe that it could be revisited in a week after he's had a chance to look at um, the growth of the of, of the variant and, and whether... Um, some of the provisions that were involved in the lockdown are necessary to continue. Let me give you an example. Uh, a lot of outdoor sports were closed because they felt that they didn't want people traveling to different parts of Ontario during the Christmas holidays. Skiing's an example. They didn't want 50,000 people going up to Collingwood. And um, that provision doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense right now. We've got outdoor amenities that if, if you don't allow people to use, they'll go to other regions to use them. You know, we've got a ski hill in Brampton that shut down, even though there's no medical advice to shut it down. And so if the concern is around variants, focus on the variants and maybe all of the provisions that were in place before in terms of the restrictions, you, know, you could remove the ones that are, that are no longer applicable. 
Uh, yeah, and it, you know, and your your comment about the timeline, it was uh, sort of amusing. Yesterday, Mayor Crombie had her briefing and she was saying, hey, Dr. Lowe, two weeks uh, is March the 3rd, not March the 9th, two weeks from the 22nd, which is when the reopening is set yeah, and, for. And, and in my conversations with Dr. Lowe, he told me he thought that was a reasonable ask, that the, that the provisions that are no longer applicable could be li- lifted. An example being the outdoor amenities. Um, you know, the, the notion that we expect municipalities to ticket kids playing outdoor um, hockey for me is 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 uh, you know over um, overkill. Uh, and so, uh, and in terms of the of revisiting this uh, after a week, you know, he told me that's something he was comfortable with. And so, I hope that when the province makes the final decision, that it's not going to be another lengthy shutdown. It's something that would be revisited on a weekly. Um, basis. And, and I have to say, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow in Brampton because uh, this, this outbreak is not in our city. It, it, it's, it's, it's in Mississauga. And so my worry is for a, visit, for a restaurant in Brampton or two kilometers away, there's a restaurant in Vaughan. Residents can go to the restaurant in Vaughan. It will be open. Um, and so and I do worry about the consequences of, of region hopping and, and how when there's only two regions shut down, that may cause... Um, Real problems on on, um, on on movement, and and we saw that when there was previously when there was only certain regions shut down. When they looked at the cell phone data, um, it really showed that uh, residents were going into the areas that were open. I, I want you to help me understand the politics of this, uh, and we did put this question to Doctor Lowe. So. Um, the province, by my reckoning, is putting out slightly, somewhat contradictory messages. On the one hand, there's reopening. On the other hand, you have the premier recording his cute messages, stay home, restez à la maison, right? Uh, so he's sending, saying he always relies on the doctors. And when he was asked about extending the stay-at-home order, he said, you know, the medical officers of health can do it on their own. They have to invoke this Section 22. So my question and our question to Dr. Lowe was, well, why don't you do that? Yeah, so I understand that the interpretation on the Section 22 article is that it wouldn't be applicable here uh, in the sense that Section 22 is something that's supposed to be um, region-specific. Um, only specific to your region, and, and this COVID pandemic isn't specific to Peel. The variants are not specific to Peel. And so, you know, I, I understand that pre- the, the Premier, I had a very good conversation with him, and, and I believe he shares a lot of the sympathy that I have for our, our small businesses. Um, he told me that he's going to make his final decision based on the recommendations from Dr. Williams, and Dr. Williams is going to uh, make his calculation based on the in- input of the local medical officers of health. And so, you know, I have to say, um, I do believe it's a good thing that the medical advice is the most significant driver in this decision-making process because it's these doctors who understand the nature of the virus um, best. I know in our case with Dr. Lawrence Lowe, you know, his previous work was with Infectious Diseases Canada, so he has a, a really in-depth understanding of how infectious diseases function. Uh, but again, I mean, it seems that if the premier says invoke this, then uh, he wouldn't try to block that invocation. No, but um, I, I believe this decision will be made at the provincial table. They have the, the legal tools. It's not a matter of, 
of blocking um, the, the the Section 22 or, or um, order within a, within the Ontario Health Act um, is not as broad based as, as as the provincial measures. Oh. Okay, um, moving right along. And in terms of the lockdown, what we have heard from small businesses is that, you know, uh, the province keeps talking about the emergency break, but that, that the stop and start aspect is at least as damaging as being closed. I understand that there's challenges with with the start and the stop, but, you know, for these businesses, you know, even if they're open for a month and they get shut down or three weeks, you know, it, it, they need some economic activity, and so you know, my my heart goes out to these 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 industries because boy, has this been one heck of a year. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, I'd I'd like to turn to the rollout and uh, people in the community, older people in the community, very relieved to hear that finally they are on the priority list, but. On the other hand, there's been criticism of the priority list because there are a lot of experts who say, hey, if you just focus on age, then you will uh, prevent the largest amount of death. 96% of the deaths are in people over 60. Um, And that by broadening the, uh, by broadening the, the groups in the first priority, you might inadvertently, uh, shut out some people in the community over 80 because they have mobility challenges or cognitive challenges. And, and I'm thinking that in Brampton, uh, there might be even further challenges because you have a lot of maybe older people who don't have English as a first language. Have you thought about um, dealing with that? Yeah, so uh, public health has said they have plans for linguistic barriers and mobility barriers, and so I'm confident there'll be the ability to get those vaccinated who need to be. But you know, this speaks to the larger problem. Right now, we can only focus on a small segment of the population these Canada's vaccine supply is, is inadequate. And if anything, it speaks to the larger problem. The biggest challenge with this pandemic right now, and the biggest challenge for Canada, is the inadequate federal procurement when it comes to vaccine supply. And um, we, we need more vaccines. It, it's as simple as that. Well, yeah, we're, we're number 47 in the world in it's vaccine rollout. It, it's embarrassing how poor the procurement rollout has been. Uh, yeah, it's pathetic. But but barring that, um, what? How large is is your older population in Brampton? It's it's huge. You know, we have um, we have one seniors association, CARP, that estimates in Brampton we have seventy thousand seniors that uh, you know are are vulnerable. And so I want to get them vaccinated as soon as possible. And so I'm tired of the of the excuses in terms of. Um, of supply. The government of Canada needs to find a way to get us that supply. Well, yeah, but again, uh, do you agree with such a broad base of, of a first priority, or are you going to try to make sure that the over 80s get uh, to the top of the list there? No, I believe it's appropriate that those over 80, they're the most vulnerable, and, and then it can go down to those over 70, those over 65. Um the issue will not be not having enough people ready to take the vaccine. Um, the issue will be there's not enough vaccines. It's, it's not like there's going to be any uh, idle vaccines when you're only focusing on the on the on the age bracket of those over eighty. Well, yeah, it's just a matter of who gets it first and how you help those people get to 
uh, the locations. Um, it, uh, how far along are you in those kinds of plans? So all the plans are complete, and we've been ready to go for several months. And you know, I, I highlighted this yesterday in my um, city press conference that um, the sites are picked, the modes of vaccinations are selected, how they're going to deal with um, vulnerable residents who've got mobility issues. All that plan is already is already done. It's, it, it's been done since last year. It, the only thing we're waiting on right now is supply. That's the only holdback. And so I know the federal government says it takes time to set up these mechanisms and to set up and to pick sites for mass vaccination. You know, that, that's nonsense. It, it, it's been set up for months. And uh, final question, Mayor Brown, you know, with the, it, it's the end of the stay at home is slated for Monday. Uh, we're, it, we're Thursday. When do you expect to hear from the province if that's what you're waiting for? Yeah, I, I expect the province is going to give an indication um, likely tomorrow. Um, having said that, it, it, it tends to be a moving uh, target if there's new information. And I know what they're looking at very, very closely is this variant outbreak in, in, in Mississauga. Okay. Mayor Patrick Brown, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. And apologies if um, my son is with me today, so he's a little noisy in the background. I, I hope that didn't disturb the, uh, the call. No, he's adorable. Thanks. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Uh, let me give you the numbers out again if you have uh, questions or comments. Um, so we're hearing about a little tug of war. The medical officers of health don't think they have the wherewithal or don't want to use the wherewithal to extend the stay-at-home order themselves. They're waiting for the province. Province is looking at it. Clear, it's clear that the province would rather not have to do it themselves for political reasons. Everybody has a lot of sympathy for the small businesses. So, um, and, and the longer it's left, the, the tougher it is on, on people who are trying to make arrangements to reopen. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to bring in Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Hello, Dr. Vaisman. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So uh, are you on side with this very urgent call from the medical officers of Toronto and Peel? Yeah, I think the, the announcements and the recommendations made yesterday by the leaders in Toronto and Peel make a lot of sense. I think something, a very big um, message for people to understand, especially the small businesses and everyone else who's been experiencing difficulties as a result of lockdowns, is that uh, this time around, the reason we want to prolong things a little bit longer is that we have vaccinations. Vaccinations are the way out of this pandemic. Whereas last time in the spring where we didn't have those available, we didn't have any opportunity for getting people immunized, that was essentially a bridge to nowhere. But now we have a bridge to vaccination, and hence the justification for trying to prolong things a little bit longer to get more people vaccinated in the meantime. Well, we don't have very much vaccination, (laughs) is the truth of it. That's true. The, the supply has been reduced beginning in early February to mid-February, but now the supply has re- uh, been brought back and hospitals are now able to do more of their frontline staff to get them vaccinated. But any time that you can buy is going to be valuable time. For one thing, the variants of concern are rising, as was mentioned, but also the number of people who can get vaccinated can be increased during that time. So any little pieces of time that you can add during this period will go a long way to preventing additional cases. So, so while we're on that subject, um, wh- what do you say to the criticism that uh, people over 80 are not being given enough priority and the mode of the rollout um, 
could inadvertently put them to the back of the line when they're at the highest risk of death. So I think the the rollout, the you know, there's always going to be some degree of inequity when it comes to the rollout of the vaccine. It was a limited supply in beginning in mid-December. But if you look at who was prioritized starting in December, it did make a lot of sense. The two groups being the people who are most likely to die as a result of COVID, which was the patients or the people living in long-term care facilities. And the second was the people looking after them, both the people working there and also the people in hospitals. So that was, I think that prioritization made sense. The very next group and then the very next phase are uh, people who are 80 year old or greater and living in the community. So it certainly makes sense that now they've been identified uh, as the next group to be vaccinated across Canada and here in Ontario. Right. But there are barriers if they have to get to the hospital, um, uh, if they have cognitive issues. I, again, the, the criticism was that if you just focused on them, that uh, you would prevent more death. I, I mean, absolutely. There's going to be a lot of work and there is a lot of work going on right now on how to get the vaccines to those people who are 80 year old or greater, who are not living in long-term care facilities, who are living in their homes in the community. And so there's a lot of work done by each individual um, municipal health uh, unit, like Toronto Public Health, all all of them across Ontario, working on how that can be best done through family doctors, through pharmacies, through uh, hospitals, thinking about ways that, that all those individuals can get access to the vaccine. Okay, back to the uh, possible extension of the stay-at-home order. What do you say to people who saying, well, the, you know, we, we saw the latest modeling, which uh, predicted basically a possible disaster. What do you say to people who say, okay, we've never had the worst case scenarios that uh, the modeling has predicted? And, uh, you know, some of the, the doctors who call for the, the strongest measures, we, that things are getting better. What do you say to those people? There's no doubt that things are currently getting better. The numbers are following ICU capacity is is still good. Um, The numbers of hospitalized patients is still falling. But it's important to look at the future. And even if the modeling numbers don't pan out, even if the worst case doesn't pan out, even if, say, a moderate situation pans out, that is still a very bad situation. And this means that a healthcare field that has been, you know, gone through a lot of stress over the last 12 months through two waves, will be further compounded, further put on in terms of a burden to deal with another wave of cases. That's going to be, every time you have a wave, you have additional stress on the system. You have additional healthcare workers who have to be put off, who, who, who suffer from it. And of course, the most important thing is that people die, right? That, that's the most important thing, is that it, when you have more cases, people die. Now that we've vaccinated the patient, people living in long-term care, we anticipate that that maybe not be as bad the next time, but still there will be a substantial number of people who will suffer. So even if the donker, even if the worst case scenario doesn't pan out, even a moderate case is still quite significant. I'd like to give the numbers out again. Again, I'd like to hear from you people. Should we put uh, off the, the, the lifting of the stay-at-home order, uh, or should it go ahead as planned on Monday, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And I'm talking to Dr. Alon Vaisman, who is an infectious diseases specialist at the University Health Network. And Dr. Vaisman, in the past few days, I have been watching the Australian Open And Australia is a place where they have instituted extremely tough measures, 
based on very few cases. They just had uh, another five-day circuit breaker lockdown because there were literally a handful of cases in a quarantine hotel. And you see the result of that, and the result is is that they don't have COVID. Right. Uh, the measures they've taken in Australia to prevent uh, further spread are, are quite rigorous, quite extreme in some cases. And of course, in New Zealand, that's been also a great example. You know, the people often ask about why that isn't the case in Canada and why can't we do the same thing in Canada. There are, there are other limitations that we are facing, like our frequent uh, travel between Canada and the United States for many essential workers, people who are providing, um, you know, necessary goods back and forth between Canada and the United States. That certainly makes things tougher. And also, there may not be the appetite in Canada for having such extreme measures instituted as was done in some parts of Australia, where there was very, very tight enforcement by police officers, for example. So, I mean, every country has to come up with solutions that's right for them that can help bring down the cases. And in Canada, it's uh, that much more challenging given the situation we're facing. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I've looked at places like Singapore, right, you can look at it and say, okay, it, there's a very different culture there and the people are a lot more willing to accept strictness from their leaders. But then you look at Australia and, you know, the population is not that different from, from the population we have here. and kind of makes you scratch your head, you know, how, how could they uh, get this done there and we can't do it here? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there, there are probably a lot of similarities between our culture in Canada and Australia. But again, uh, whether or not Canadians are willing to go to the extent uh, that Australia went to to limit the cases, um, and there are examples, for example, in, in Melbourne, where there was very severe uh, restrictions, very severe enforcement of those restrictions. It's a, it's up for debate. It's up for discussion in Canada whether we're willing to go to that extent. And secondly, also... How effective is that going to be in Canada when you have so much back and forth travel with the United States and other parts of the world where cases can constantly be introduced? Can you, can you reasonably go for that uh, aim of having zero cases in Canada? That's the big question. Is it worth to go through all that very, very severe restriction if we're not going to be able to obtain zero cases in Canada? Well, the, the Atlantic bubble kind of worked, didn't it? Yes, for, for some time it did work. Um, there are cases now in Newfoundland, and there are yeah. some cases as well in New Brunswick. And for a long time, the, the restrictions they enforced were very effective. And again, there, there are other reasons for that as well. The, the fact that there is generally less travel in between that part of the country than, let's say, Ontario and the neighboring states in the United States. There is a large volume of back and forth in Ontario compared to those areas. And their ability to restrict that was probably a lot more effective as well. So, so yes, it's certainly there is success in that aim in some parts of Canada. Okay, let's take a call from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So there is now experience that um, in terms of the effect on, on the economy, that a hard lockdown uh, is better for the economy than um, the uh, stop and start or no lockdown at all. And I think what we've done is we've been playing at the edges with the lockdowns and not giving it enough time nor uh, being as restrictive as other jurisdictions, which have already been discussed on the show, have. And so if, if, if it's about the economy, uh, 
the lockdown is more effective. And I'll leave it there. Okay, Dennis, thanks for that. Yeah, we've we've heard from small business people who say, you know, every time it stops and starts, they have issues uh, getting their places of business ready, calling people back to work, uh, you know, then sending them home. It's uh, I can just imagine. I mean, honestly, uh, you know, it, it's easy to say my heart goes out to them, but 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 it does. This is really a tough situation, and and it really affects different businesses in different ways. Um, let's hear from Joe in Toronto. Hi, Joe. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. Uh, my concern is I don't really think we're looking at the mental health issue that this is encountering. Um, I, I fully understand this is serious disease. I fully understand we should be masking. We should be washing our hands. We should be separating from each other. I understand that. But to fully close everything and to keep closing everything is not the answer. You know, the small businesses up and down the streets where they only get two or three shoppers at a time, they're forced to close. And yet Costco and Walmart are open and people are lining up right next to each other. Even though they're supposed to be social distancing, it's almost impossible. So we're forcing people like almost a funnel into these larger stores and these small businesses are losing their livelihood, and they're not coming back. There's no way they're going to be able to survive from this. And then there's the mental health issue. A lot of people suffer from SAD, where at a certain time of year, it's dark, it's cold, and, and they really struggle with that. Well, when you can't even go outside your house to, to even go to the library and pick up a book, how busy is a library? Let's be honest. Or just Some of them are very with- busy, Joe. Um, uh, I, I, I hear you, Joe. Thanks for your call. Uh Dr. Vaseman, um, before we go, uh, I, you know, in terms of the how contagious the new variants are, is there any clarity, you know, with with the old one? I remember they said that you had to be in fairly close contact with somebody for about 15 minutes. And if not, the, the virus wouldn't be transmitted. Are there any parameters for what will cause the transmission of these new ones? Yes, it's a very good question. Even the 15-minute parameter that was outlined during the first wave or parts of the second wave, that number is kind of pulled out of the air because you have to set a cutoff at some point. And that was just a reasonable approximate time based on some cases, based on some understanding of how the virus is transmitted. But 15 is not really a magical number. There are, you may have a transmission event with the normal variant of COVID, even with less exposure. With the new variants, it's not clear whether uh, less time of exposure can also lead to transmission. The presumed answer is yes, which means that people have, out of an abundance of caution, have decided to use a very low threshold to decide on what's an exposure. So certainly that has been taken up by public health units across Canada to have a very low threshold to consider something an exposure, so even less than 15 minutes. So there is no specific number that's given, but I think people are using their discretion to uh, consider something exposure even um, more likely than they were in the past. Right, but to to help out a, a regular person trying to go about their life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, is is uh, can you be exposed in the time it takes to go in an elevator? Most of them are are uh, you, they're they're cut back to just two people in an elevator. But if you're masked in a person in an elevator, can that transmit it? If you just pass someone in a hallway, can that transmit it? I mean, I think that we kind of don't know. That, that's right. But 
I, I think it's important for people to recognize if you are wearing an appropriate mask for your face, it's well-fitted. The likelihood of transmission, even with the new variants, is still low. The concern still remains is the unmasked interactions between individuals. That's where the primary mode of transmission will still occur. And that's where it's more likely to occur with the new variants. So perhaps even with a few minutes or fewer of exposure of two individuals not wearing masks or one masked, one unmasked, that's where we are seeing more transmission with the new variants with even very little amount of exposure. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Uh, I just... I think an important message for the government to, you know, to to give people speaking to the comments that, that the listeners have been bringing in the last few minutes, we have to have sympathy for the small businesses and everyone who's experiencing mental health problems as a result of these stay-at-home owners, these lockdowns. But an important message that will help people to understand why we're doing the things we're doing is that there is a bridge to vaccination. That is, the I think, the most important message here. Before this, there were, it was a bridge to nowhere, but, but now we have the vaccines on the horizon, and we can bring that to people. We can get people vaccinated. We can prevent a next wave by waiting just a little bit longer to get that done. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Okay. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, there could be major changes in the legislation governing medical assistance in dying. The Senate sent it back to the House with some very bold amendments. And uh, what do they say? Well, uh, we'll drill down on that when we come back on the other side of the break. Let me give out the numbers if you have something to say about that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We could be on the cusp of major changes to the rules around medical assistance in dying. The government revamped the legislation after it was struck down in court because of the provision that a person's death had to be imminent. Now the Senate has added some major amendments which would allow Canadians to make advance requests for assisted deaths and would give governments and medical bodies 18 months to come up with guidelines so individuals with mental illness as their sole underlying condition could request a medically assisted death. Now the amendments were proposed by Senator Pamela Wallen and I reached her in Toronto. Here's the problem. There's a catch-22 in the legislation. Uh, in the old legislation, you could only ask for medical assistance in dying if your death was reasonably foreseeable, meaning imminent. Um, in the new legislation, they've proposed that your death doesn't have to be reasonably foreseeable, but it has to be coming soon, and you have to have serious and grievous pain. But the one group they left out are the people who suffer from cognitive uh, disabilities, the issue of dementia, of Alzheimer's. The catch-22 is this, that you can't ask for medical assistance in dying before you're diagnosed. And once you're diagnosed, they say, ah, you have dementia, you're not 
capable or competent of asking. So we just wanted to try and eliminate that real problem there. It was kind of like the illness lottery. You know, if you had cancer or another very serious illness with that that brought in brought on irremediable irremediable pain you could ask and if you had dementia you could not so that's really what it's targeted at and it was passed by the senate and now we'll hand it over to the government Disability advocates uh, are very worried about it, and they believe that it will devalue the lives of people with disabilities and and lead to a death of people who are not considered valuable. How do you answer those concerns? Well, every life is is valuable, and what gives me reassurance and what should give everyone reassurance, really, is how rigorous and strict this system is. It's not like you get to phone up and say, you know, um, I, I don't, uh, I, I want to end my life now because I'm having a bad day. Or a family member can call up and say, look, uh, our, our brother's a problem here because he, uh, you know, it's difficult to deal with someone with a disability. That's not how it works. In the first place, it has to be a question of choice on the part of the person. Uh, and then you enter this system of assessment, which involves family and medical doctors and nurses and assessors who are trained to do this. And it's rigorous. And you have to go through that and you have to go through that process over time. And there are constant checks and balances in the system to say, are you sure you still want this to happen? Are you, you know, are you sure there's no other mechanism or service or treatment that we can find that would help you through this, et cetera, et cetera. It's, there's lots of protections in the system. Uh, yeah, but again, if you're doing it in advance, first of all, none of us know how we would actually feel about our lives in the situation uh, is really, I think, the truth. But uh, but if, if the checks and balances are in advance, um, how would... How would you know or people know when to trigger it and how would that work? Well, this is the the process for anybody who's gone through this experience, as I have with two parents, but my mother is the one who had Alzheimer's. These discussions in our family went on for years in advance. Now, there was no such thing as made at that time, So, it, but, but there their request was the same. Please don't let us suffer. It's a concept that we have already that's widely practiced called a DNR, a do not resuscitate. People choose to sign those documents before they go into surgery, say, for example, and and say, if I can't uh, come out of this the way I was before, if I don't have mental capability or physical capability, then I don't want to go on no extraordinary measures to save me. Or things in living wills, so that if you're in a, a car accident, that people can know what your wishes are. So it's the same thing. I, with a grandmother and a mother in my family who died of complications from Alzheimer's, I pretty much know that that's going to be my fate. And I want to be able to talk to an assessor now and say, look, of sound mind and body, here is my intent. Let's keep discussing that over time. 
maybe there'll be some miraculous cure. I don't know. If there is, then that may change the discussion. But let's keep talking. But here are the circumstances in which I do not want to go on because I wouldn't consider it either a dignified life or a quality of life if I can't recognize my family, if I can't eat or swallow or dress myself or have any kind of conscious um, uh, appreciation of life, then that would be something, that would be a time for me where I think this should go ahead. What do you say to people who say this is really a, a, a huge change uh, from the original proposed bill and it's really not the Senate's place to uh, make that kind of policy? Well, it's not um, a huge change. What I'm trying to deal with is is this clause, this discrimination against this one group with with cognitive issues that kind of exclude them from that. Um, so it it wasn't a huge change. If your if your death is not foreseeable, but you want to talk about and plan for when it might be. Uh, I think that's a reasonable proposition. We have to um, change. If you look at the public attitudes on this, it's between 75 and 80 percent of Canadians believe in the concept of advanced directives. They want to have some control not only over their life, but over their death and how they leave this world. And uh, a same number believes that advanced requests should be available for those with Alzheimer's or, or dementia. So the public is there. Many of us are dealing with this in our families. So it's now become very real. Uh, I remember sitting there trying to feed my mother. She had forgotten because that's what happens with Alzheimer's. Your body forgets how to do things. Trying to get her to eat, to, to open her mouth, to try and mimic the swallowing function. This was a elegant woman who was a teacher for many years and uh, she was so proud and she that was not how she wanted to live and as I said we'd had those discussions uh, over many years that that doesn't constitute living a dignified quality life. What do you say to people who say it's just not the Senate's place to do something so monumental? But it, but it is our, our job. That's what the Senate is there for. There's the elected House of Commons, and they pass legislation, and they have partisan um, uh, intentions and parameters. Uh, governments propose and oppositions oppose, and they always have electoral considerations. The Senate is the Chamber of Sober Second Thought. That is where the legislation comes. We review it. We study it. It goes to committees. People propose amendments. We vote on it as voices of provinces and and representatives of those provinces. And it's part of the balance of our parliamentary system. The government has the right to reject all of these amendments. Um, and we have the right then to say, well, we think we should study these further. One of the amendments that has been proposed is to ask the government to live up to its commitment to actually study the changes on this front. So we've proposed that a joint committee of House of Commons, members of the House of Commons, elected members and senators, appointed members, get together and really wrestle these issues to the ground. 
so we're waiting. Let's hope they agree to that. Let's hope they take out the discriminatory aspects of this bill, um, because then it will be found unconstitutional. We'll be back in the courts again. So let's take our responsibilities as senators and elected members and put together some laws that reflect what Canadians want and need. Okay, Senator Pamela Wallen, thanks so much. Thanks. It'll be good to talk with you. Uh, Nice talking with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so uh, conservative critics released a statement saying they have heard from persons with disabilities and medical professionals who've made it clear that they believe this expansion of MAID, medical assistance in dying, uh, is dangerous and requires more scrutiny, but nobody was made available to talk to us. Uh, Now we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by the CEO of Dying with Dignity. Uh, Before we go, people, uh, I know there were people uh, waiting uh, to... uh, Give their comments. Be patient. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, We've been talking about some amendments proposed and passed by the Senate to the legislation on medical assistance in dying. And uh, those amendments would allow people to make advance requests for medical assistance in dying. And it's it's, uh, really directed for people with dementia. The other thing that the Senate approved was sending back to uh, the House uh, to find a framework so that people whose only underlying condition is a mental health condition so that they could respect it, uh, request it as well. Uh, so uh, I'm going to drill down on that. But before we get to our next guest, I'd like to take a call from Pam in Mississauga. Hi, Pam. Are you there, Pam in Mississauga? Um, yes. Hello. Libby. Yes. Go ahead. You're on yeah, the air. Hi, my name is Claire. Oh. I guess. Oh. Anyway, just wanted to say kudos to uh, Senator Wallen. I couldn't agree with her more. I um, nursed my husband uh, until he went into a home with Alzheimer's, and I uh, most certainly, uh, if I was diagnosed with it, I would definitely request a medically assisted death. There's no question about it. Uh, yeah, it's a very difficult uh, thing. Yeah, to... he uh, he would have, um, <laughs> you know, to to put it bluntly, slit his wrists had he known how he was becoming for the last, I would say, five years of his life. And uh, there's no dignity in it, uh, nothing. You lose the person that they were, and uh, uh, or who you are. And I wouldn't want my family to ever see me like that. Yeah. Okay, Pam, thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. Now I'd like to uh, bring in Helen Long, who is the CEO of Dying with Dignity. Hello, Helen. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, Well, what is your reaction to those amendments that the Senate is proposing? 
Yeah, so there's actually five amendments, and I would say overall Dying with Dignity Canada is supportive of the amendments. Um, to be clear, we were supportive of Bill C-7 in its original format, but I think a few of the amendments go that one step further, and certainly Senator Wallen's um, amendment to allow for advanced requests is something that we have long advocated for. We had hoped to see that addressed in the parliamentary review that government should have begun uh, in June of 2021, um, but we're obviously thrilled to see it um, as an amendment at this point. This is the thing we hear most about from Canadians. Um, over 80% of Canadians that, that we survey annually would like to see an advance request uh, be an option for them. It's the number one thing that people contact us about. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you agree with the argument that really it's the same thing as a as a, a do not resuscitate or an ad- advance planning, uh, say, for the event of a catastrophic accident? Do you see this as the same thing? I mean, I think it's, you know, from my perspective, it's more of a next step to advanced care planning. So advanced care planning is something that we, um, you know, highly encourage Canadians to do. We have a kit and a provincial form available on our website at dyingwithdignity.ca. And this is, I guess you could liken it to a next step. It's about making your wishes known. And I think, you know, even to provide another example, anyone at any good time could have, for example, a catastrophic fall. Um, If you don't have an advanced request option for MAID, you are now totally unable to make any decisions about your health care and your life moving forward. So an advanced request would deal with a you know, quite a broad range of um, inadvertent catastrophic events, as well as um, concerns that people with dementia may have. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another amendment that they approved, which uh, I think is even more controversial, and that is uh, making medical assistance in dying available to people with um, mental health conditions, where that is their only underlying condition. What's your position on that? Well, again, I mean... M- the way Bill C-7 was written, it specifically excluded those with a mental illness as a sole underlying condition. We expressed right away our concerns that that was discriminatory and, in fact, unconstitutional. And I think through the course of the debate, senators and even the MPs when the bill was in the House um, heard from a wide range of experts and lawyers who, who did agree that um, excluding one group solely on that criteria without a case-by-case assessment and, and a way of evaluating them is, is not constitutional and should not be allowed in legislation. So I think putting that motion forward, Senator Kutcher um, put that amendment forward, I think that addresses that concern, uh, but it has an 18-month sunset clause. So what that means is the government has 18 months um, to get the process in place and to make sure that everyone's ready to manage it. We know from um, Senator Kutcher's testimony around his amendment that there's a national training program that will be accredited by the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons and the College of Family Physicians of Canada that's already being organized. Um, and based on his comments, uh, it should inform based on best available evidence how to assess and provide uh, made in these cases. So, you know, there's time to get that infrastructure in place and to work with clinicians to ensure that we're we're putting in place the right safeguards and, and the right process to um, ensure that those with a mental illness are not discriminated against. Uh, 
Uh, I'd like to give the numbers out again. We do have a few minutes left in this segment. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Helen Long from Dying with Dignity about the amendments proposed by the Senate to the legislation on medical assistance in dying. And Helen, um, there are people who say uh, on a procedural basis that really um, these amendments are profound and that they should not be coming from the Senate, which is an unelected body. They should not be making that kind of policy. And do you have any thoughts that this just delays the whole thing? I mean, the new legislation was sparked uh, by a court ruling, ruling that the original legislation was unconstitutional. So does this just, uh, you know, put the whole thing off to uh, who knows when? Well, I mean, certainly we're concerned about the time that's elapsed. It's now almost a year uh, since the government tabled their first uh, legislation, and there's been three extensions to the deadline. The new deadline is, uh, the current deadline, I should say, I guess, is February 26th. So time has always been a concern for us. Uh, In terms of the Senate, I mean, I think Senator Wallen addressed that. Uh, It is an independent Senate. It's intended to be a sober second thought. Uh, They're free to make amendments, as they've done in this case. And I think now it's up to the House of Commons to decide how they want to proceed. And, you know, Dying with Dignity Canada and our supporters, we would love to see these amendments or some of these amendments passed. But we would also be happy to see Bill C-7 with the reasonable foreseeability criteria removed and what we refer to as Audrey's Amendment or that waiver of final consent, because those are already significant um, shifts for people who are suffering and who have been unable to have the best assisted death they would like. Okay, uh, I'm going to try to take one more call. Uh, We've got Beverly in Cambridge. Hi, Beverly. Hello, how are you doing? I enjoy your show every day. Thank you very much. Uh, we have very little time left, so if okay. you could make your question concise. Okay, uh, what it is, is um, I'm power of attorney for a friend that uh, has schizophrenia, dementia, and many health problems. He he also has a DNR, and uh, he hasn't wanted to be in this world for many years. I'm wondering if if this is going to affect his um, his decisions. Uh, Beverly, I'm going to let you go and let Helen answer that, okay? Okay. Okay, Thank thanks. Much. Uh, Helen? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously I'm not a clinician and the law hasn't changed as yet, but certainly anyone with a mental illness would be able to request medically assessed uh, assisted death and then would have to go through the assessment process. So that would ultimately be a decision uh, for the individual clinicians involved in that that person's care, I think um, she. Certainly- I think she's asking if any of this affects what he already has in place. Uh, well, it would be a new process, so his existing documentation would have no impact on the the made process. You would have to actually start as if you were just beginning a made process. So no, I think she's request. Okay, I think she's just asking if if this comes into place, does it? change anything that he already has? And I think the answer is no. No, it wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. We have less than a minute left. Helen, what would you like to leave us with on this? Uh, Well, I think just, you know, this has been a a great, a great, a lot of work for the Senate and the House. And I think Canadians are very supportive. 
if any of your listeners uh, really want to see Bill C-7 passed, I would encourage them to visit our website, dyingwithdignity.ca, for more information. And if they'd like to send a letter to their MP to let them know that this is top of mind, um, they should, should do that soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Helen Long, CEO of Dying with Dignity. Thank you. Okay. And remember, Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.